2: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Thomas Schwartz, author of the book Henry Kissinger and American Power. Tom, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay. I'm, uh, I
0: am grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, um, had the privilege of going to some good universities, Columbia, and then a, a fellowship to Oxford, and then I did my PhD at Harvard University. And I've been teaching here at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, for the last thirty years. I'm the proud father of three daughters and a lifelong New York Giants fan.
2: So
0: <laughs> those are those sum up some of my uh, uh, personal background.
2: What was it that led you to write a biography of Henry Kissinger? And What were some of the challenges that you faced in doing so?
0: Well. I was led to it. I I had written a review, um, and Louis Mazur, uh, the editor at the time of Reviews in American History, told me that he was involved in a project with Hill and Wang um, to do biographies of figures in American history. And the biographies would be designed to teach broader subject. And in this case, he said to me, can you think of someone in American history who would teach the notion of our diplomacy or foreign affairs? So I gave it a lot of thought, talked to a lot of people, and the, the one name that keep, kept coming back to me was Henry Kissinger, that his biography really does encapsulate a lot of the issues related to the history of American foreign policy, American uh, involvement in the world. And so I started. Um, the challenge was that <laughs> Henry Kissinger is probably one of the most documented figure uh, figures in American history. His own memoirs run some 4,000 pages. He has written an enormous amount. Um, He also kept records um, that gradually became available that are also extensive. He also figures very prominently in the two years of the Nixon uh, tapes, um, some 3,700 hours of tape, and he's on there a lot. So those also were a source. And at Vanderbilt, we have something called the Television News Archive, which has been recording the evening news since 1968, and Henry Kissinger was a big part of that as well. So the real challenge was, in the end, trying to write a concise or short book or one-volume biography of Henry Kissinger um, that could be accessible to a broader audience.
2: It was thinking it was quite a challenge too, and it was something that because I know I what you were, what you mean about how Henry Kissinger is this very uh, large figure in terms of American foreign policy, and yet it's fascinating to consider that he's only Secretary of State for four years, he is only National Security Advisor for four years, and yet he cast this enormous shadow over really the entire second half of the twentieth century.
0: That is uh, very much the case. I think he uh, he he was also. The interesting thing is that's exactly right. And the focus of my book is on his time in government. And that's deliberate in part because that is where the records are accessible. Um, Kissinger, after 1977, was a private citizen. And although there are records and materials related to his involvement in foreign affairs, and some of them are very interesting, um, those are not accessible yet. And, uh, you know, Kissinger has his own um, official biographer, uh, Neil Ferguson, who's now at Stanford but was at Harvard. Um, who who did a one-volume thing on Kissinger up to 1969 but in effect um, I had to focus on the period of time in which he was in government the shadow he cast I think is the fact that he was so influential Over a large number of those who study foreign affairs and foreign policy, his ability to actually execute that policy became a sort of uh, roadmap to many who tried to imitate it. It also became something that some wanted to avoid, uh, they didn't like. So in a way, uh, the, the ongoing period after 1977 was a continuing debate about what Henry Kissinger had tried to do in American foreign policy and the different approaches that many took to that.
2: Before we get into that though I'd like to take us back to his early years and talk mm-hmm. about some of those formative experiences and how it was that you that he's is able to go from you know a you know, career in academia to becoming a, a shaper of foreign policy directly what was his uh, what were what was his childhood like and, and what was and what was that that you know got him started
0: well, but the fascinating thing about his childhood is I don't think he would have predicted that a, a German a Jewish boy born in 1923 would end up being uh, almost president of the United States at one point during his period of time. It was uh, uh, He was, in effect, a refugee from Hitler's Germany. Um, they were able to come before things uh, turned very bad. They left in 1938 when Kissinger was 15 years old. But he was someone whose early life was very disrupted by the rise of Nazism and what he saw to happen to his uh, relatives and parents. Um, uh, the ironic thing is that this refugee from Nazi Germany forced out uh, of his country comes back a few years later in, in the uh, uh, uniform of an American soldier and plays a role in the occupation of Germany, where he was actually directly involved with running cities and arresting Gestapo agents. Um, his career can't be disassociated, you might say, from the events of the early 20th century, both in terms of what happened to the United States and its involvement in world affairs, and then our relationship with Germany, which was so important. And that played a role then in his transformation and career. And uh, as a result of these experiences, rather than become what he looked like he was becoming when he came, first came to New York, an accountant, Um, He goes on to Harvard University and studies uh, uh, history and uh, meets mentors who are impressed with him and encourages involvement in a whole range of international activities, uh, taking advantage of both his intelligence and his uh, knowledge and understanding of Germany and Europe. And he rises through the ranks. Um, He attracts uh, the interest of Uh, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, who would become the governor of New York, and um, many people thought would be president, becomes an advisor to him, uh, then ends up uh, taking a part-time position in the Kennedy, uh, and then later in the Johnson administrations, and uh, basically walks the line between academia and government during uh, his early
2: life. I, I thought that notion of of mentorship was interesting because you you highlight those key mentorship roles that mm-hmm. he has. You know, first when, when he's serving in Germany, then in academia, and then, and of course, he. Uh, you know, I perhaps this is a bit of, of an exaggeration, but he hitches his star to Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller, yes, and and it definitely help, helps uh, uh You know. Elevate his stature what, what how how did he go from you know that association with Nelson Rockefeller to uh becoming a uh, con- coming under consideration for a position in the nixon administration
0: well, I think the 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 involvement with rockefeller and I think people have to remember that Rockefeller was such a significant figure um he represented at the time what was a large wing of the Republican party. It may have disappeared by now this sort of liberal wing of that party, but Kissinger, Nelson Rockefeller was someone. Who himself became ultimately vice president, almost became president. Um, he uh, he was a significant figure, and I think Kissinger's role in that le- led him to be elevated as someone who was close to the center of thinking about American foreign policy. Our uh, we had we had political polarization then, but not of the same type. And there was a center and and kissinger was close to that by being attached to rockefeller and kissinger was willing often to provide advice to democrats as well as republicans in fact i think sometimes that led to some controversies about his roles uh, at the time but he uh... his his basic thinking about american foreign policy was very close to the orthodox views of most of the american foreign policy establishment and that allowed him I think, to work with Rockefeller and then ultimately then Nixon uh, when he comes into office to see him as as perhaps the senior most Republican foreign policy analyst and to bring him into office.
2: What was the appeal uh, to Nixon to bringing uh Rockefeller? Uh, Kissinger in? Was it an attempt to reach out to those uh, Rockefeller Republicans or did Nixon read Kissinger's writings and find something uh, sympathetic in uh, in, in a lot of Kissinger's thinking?
0: I do think he read some of Kissinger's writings, Um, particularly I think they actually shared an admiration for French President Charles de Gaulle. Uh, And Nixon also evidently had read uh, uh, Kissinger's early work on nuclear weapons. Um, So Nixon was familiar with Kissinger. But I think he he also reached out to him as a way – Kissinger had all of the sort of establishment connections. He was at Harvard University. He was tied to Rockefeller. And this was a way in some ways for Nixon to reassure – a lot of people within the foreign policy establishment that he was reliable. In fact, uh, I quote, I think, one of the figures uh, uh, of that uh, period, Adam uh, Yamolinsky, who said, we'll all, th- we'll all sleep more comfortably knowing that Henry is down in Washington with Nixon. Nixon was <laughs> distrusted by a lot of the Harvard and, and Democratic policy elites and others, um, as being too hardline, a cold warrior. Um, even the Russians, of course, also had that feeling about him at, at when he first came in. And uh, I think uh, Kissinger's appointment was a way, uh, a type of reassurance that uh, he would follow a, a, a policy that would be uh, uh, would not be dangerous. Now, the other side of the coin, I think, is that Nixon also rec- rec- recognized in Kissinger someone who could bring foreign policy into the White House that would allow the president to use foreign policy for his own purposes, not uh, defer it to the State Department, which uh, Nixon distrusted and in which he did not thought was dominated by Democrats. And I think he did see in Kissinger's brilliance someone he could use uh, to carry out foreign policy that he wanted to conduct.
2: So Kissinger comes in, and he comes in as National Security Advisor. What was Mm -hmm. that role like in Nixon's White House, and what were some of the early uh, challenges that Kissinger faced in it? Well,
0: it's an interesting role because the National Security Advisor is appointed by the president and answers to the president. He has a constituency, or she, and as the case with Condoleezza Rice, for example, who's the uh, national security advisor for George W. Bush. They have a constituency of one. They deal with the president. And their power really is related to their relationship with the president. Um, there was a secretary of state in the first Nixon term, William Rogers, um, who was a personal friend of Nixon, but in a way was pushed to the side by the fact that Nixon and Kissinger wanted to run foreign policy from the White House. And what Kissinger provided Nixon with was a person who could bring into the White House and uh, also, because of his connections, bring a lot of, of advisors and others from Harvard, from other places in academia, uh, who would provide the sort of expertise that normally would have gone to the State Department, but could then come into the White House to the National Security Advisor. In past, the, the, the previous National Security Advisors had been important, people like Walt Rostow and McGeorge Bundy. But they hadn't been as, as as dominating as Kissinger would become because of his relationship with Nixon and also because Nixon wanted foreign policy to be a presidential prerogative and also to be something that he could use for his political purposes. And Kissinger provided him with that. And, and one of the challenges for Kissinger was to be able to conduct foreign policy Uh, in a way that uh, um, allowed or pushed aside the State Department, which did not want to be pushed aside. And so there were lots of bureaucratic conflicts, which Kissinger in his memoirs makes clear that he thinks Nixon actually enjoyed because it gave Nixon more power in the uh, position of deciding between advisors. But he he nevertheless used Kissinger uh, very effectively during his first term. Mm -hmm.
2: And we're talking about a time when uh, Nixon is elected president and Kissinger becomes national security advisor, where foreign policy is a very dominant subject in mm-hmm. American public debates. And of course, this—you uh, know—where the, the, this is most visibly evident is with the Vietnam War, right?
0: right. And that is when Kissinger and Nixon, with uh, Nixon and Kissinger, and I think you have to keep Nixon in mind here, uh, <laughs> because Kissinger was very much his subordinate during first term. Uh, When they come in, they are dealing with the fact that America has uh, half a million men in Vietnam and no real strategy on what to do and where to go from that. And uh, this had paralyzed American foreign policy. There was no relationship with China. Uh, Relations with the Soviet Union had cooled considerably from what seemed to be a, 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 a softening because of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August of 1968 um americans also had soured of foreign policy uh, american public opinion felt the united states was greatly overextended americans wanted to come home uh, america would later be a campaign slogan but there was a feeling that the united states was spending way too much on military more than half of its budget and we had many social problems uh, the assassination of martin luther king and let the uh, huge disturbances in American cities. There was a feeling that the United States had not done enough to deal with its racial, um, other inequality at home, and so it was a really challenging time to try to readjust American foreign policy. And that's what Nixon and Kissinger really faced in there uh, when they first started.
2: You also mentioned in the book that there was the, He had this additional pressure in that he had campaigned on this. Nixon had campaigned on this idea that he had the secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Yeah. and, and, and yeah. there was that expectation that Nixon would be able to achieve this how does how do Nixon and Kissinger go about uh, addressing the war in Vietnam I mean is there a secret plan uh, does Kissinger have any ideas to how to end it uh, and, and, and how did t- how do the two work together and what was not only a very controversial issue but obviously also a very visible one
0: yes and this is this is I think a, a very difficult one to, to wrap up Completely, because it's it's uh, involves so many uh, different issues. Um, I think Nixon did have a, a an idea of how he wanted to end the war, and part of it was based on what he had observed with President Eisenhower and the Korean War. Nixon was vice president under Eisenhower, and he saw what he thought was Eisenhower using the threat of escalation, even nuclear weapons, uh, to force the Soviets and Chinese to pressure the North Koreans and everyone to come to to some type of settlement. And I think Nixon thought he could end the Vietnam War by pressuring the Soviets or offering them incentives as well. Uh, to pressure the North Vietnamese to end the war, and that the possibility of using that type of same technique would go ahead. The problem was the strategic situation had changed so fundamentally from 1953 to 1969 that this really wasn't possible. The Soviet Union was the equal to the United States in nuclear weapons by 1969, when it, in 1953 it had been vastly uh, outnumbered by American power at that time. Um, uh, the Soviets were far more concerned with their rivalry with China than they were with uh, dealing with the United States on Vietnam. Um, And so the Nixon and Kissinger people tried to initially try to get the Soviets involved, and that that really failed. The whole linkage idea failed. Um, Ultimately, the strategy that came up was really the one from Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird of Vietnamization, of basically gradual withdrawal. Uh, from Vietnam um, and placing and trying to place more responsibility with the South Vietnamese Army, while Kissinger did conduct secret and begin secret negotiations with the North Vietnamese, which I would argue ultimately were fairly futile. The North Vietnamese really were not interested in an agreement at that time. And so even though I think Nixon and Kissinger came in with the idea that they could by taking various steps, for example, bombing Cambodia and trying to hit North Vietnamese units there in a way that Johnson had not. They thought, and then eventually sending troops in there, they thought they could end it early, and they found themselves really frustrated and unable to end the war as quickly as they thought they could.
2: You know, Vietnam looms large throughout that first term, but as you also uh, explained, it's far from the only foreign policy issue that uh, uh, Kissinger is engaging in during his time as national security advisor. What were some of the other areas of concern and what role did Kissinger play in shaping uh, the administration's policy towards those regions? Well, this is,
0: uh, in the first term, Vietnam was dominating for the first few years, but there were other issues. And this was complicated by the fact that Uh, For example, in the Middle East, the Soviets had sent in large numbers of their forces into Egypt, and there was a, a war of attrition between Egypt and Israel. Now, Kissinger was barred by Nixon from dealing with the Middle East, but at the same time, Nixon had encouraged him to deal with the Soviets, and the Soviets were involved there. So it created a messy bureaucratic battle between Kissinger and Rogers over issues in the Middle East, where Kissinger was far more skeptical of any type of settlement that could be reached there, whereas the State Department was pushing for some type of of an arrangement there that would provide a a settlement between Egypt and Israel and uh, and other Arab countries. Uh, Kissinger was also uh, brought in uh, to deal with the crisis that developed over uh, Chile and the election of a um, Marxist president there. Nixon did not want that to go ahead and uh, put Kissinger in charge plans to try to undermine the election of of Salvador Allende and prevent him from becoming president. Uh, Europe was also an area where Kissinger uh, dealt with the Germans. The Germans were interested, particularly after the uh, election of of Chancellor Willy Brandt, wanted to reach out to the Russians um, to try to get some sort of settlement in Eastern Europe which uh, the Nixon administration both on the one hand welcomed, on the other hand, did not want the Germans to get out of uh, the possibility that Germany might be lured by the Soviets in some way of weakening its ties to the NATO alliance. So all of those issues were also part of the early period of the Nixon years where they were trying to balance off, trying to end the war in Vietnam, trying to establish um, a new relationship with the Soviet Union in arms control, and also... Um, Nixon's interest in some type of opening to China. Uh, But I make the case um, that uh, on the whole, most of their initiatives in the first period um, were largely unsuccessful or counterproductive, as I would argue with Chile. Um, But that, uh, in effect, uh, Nixon doesn't begin to achieve many successes until um, the second half of his first term.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. And
2: that's where you get to this remarkable period that you describe as the trifecta, which is this, you know, this series of foreign policy triumphs in 1972 that make for a optimal run-up to Nixon's re-election effort. What was the trifecta, and what was Kissinger's role in bringing it about?
0: Well, the trifecta was Kissinger's comment that the the three achievements, China, Russia, and Vietnam— uh, would be the way would be part of the way in which Nixon would be reelected in a landslide. Um, China was not something that initially Kissinger was very optimistic about, but uh, and Nixon Nixon uh, really should give, be given more of the credit. And some people would argue now the blame for opening to China. But Nixon was the one who recognized that the Soviet Union and China who fought a border war in both uh, in 1969. That manipulating that relationship could benefit the United States and so in the spring of 1971 the Chinese indicated a willingness to discuss this Uh, the Chinese were willing to discuss it publicly Nixon wanted to keep it secret I argue not just because of a fear of right-wing reaction but because he wanted and sense to use it as an electoral uh, issue because he knew that I think the opening to China could be vastly popular with Americans who would like to see the United States have more flexibility in its foreign policy and also uh, have fewer enemies. And in effect, uh, Kissinger carried out the secret trip that began the negotiations with China. Um, In July of 1971, Nixon truly stunned the nation when he uh, mentioned that he would be visiting Beijing. Uh, This had an almost immediate effect on the Soviets, who had been dragging their heels about any type of meeting with Nixon to discuss the nuclear arms issue. Um, They suddenly now um, recognized their need to have a summit and um, agreed to meet with Nixon and to accelerate the preparation for a, a, a nuclear arms agreement. And the combination of the relationship now between the United States, China, and Russia now began to isolate north vietnam from its principal allies this didn't stop the north vietnamese of course from launching a military offensive and trying to bring down the south vietnamese government but they found that they did not have the same degree of support from the soviets and chinese and this this ultimately i think led them to a willingness to negotiate a final like some type of an agreement with the americans this all came together in 1972 with nixon's extraordinary trip to china Then his uh, trip to uh, the Soviet Union, despite the fact the United States was now mining North Vietnamese harbors and and, and, uh, bombing the North to prevent them from taking the South in 1972. And then um, the uh, decision uh, of the North Vietnamese to drop their demand that the South Vietnamese government be replaced. And Kissinger's famous press conference, uh, the first time he did a sort of public press conference Uh, where he said, pieces at hand right before the election. So it was, the trifecta played a big role both in uh, foreign policy achievement, but also in the domestic political struggle and Nixon's uh, landslide victory.
2: So Nixon wins the second term, and it seems like Kissinger is very much at the heart of affairs as national security advisor. How is it that he becomes secretary of state? And and frankly, why does he want to become secretary of state if he's, if he's proving to be so influential already in the, by being uh, close at hand to Nixon?
0: Well, I think um, that, that, that is, that's kind of an interesting question. And I make an argument in my chapter that Nixon and Kissinger, there other people have made the case that Kissinger would have been um, Uh, Nixon would have gotten rid of Kissinger in his second term, but in fact I argue that no, Nixon was planning to use Kissinger again, both in the Middle East and Europe and other places to continue this policy of having foreign policy success build up his political strength at home. Uh, Then Watergate, and Watergate uh, had this enormous impact uh, destroying Nixon's political capital in the United States, reducing him very quickly in his popularity. And uh, ultimately, Nixon seized on Kissinger's role uh, as a successful figure and as an extraordinarily popular figure. Uh, Kissinger was one of the most admired Americans in the polls in 1972 and the most admired in '73 and '74. And Nixon seized on Kissinger's role. And Kissinger ultimately wanted, in a way, to have a power base separate from Nixon. As I mentioned, National Security Advisor has only a constituency of one Uh, The State Department role was far more uh, sturdy in that sense, and Kissinger got both. In effect, he was was one of the only figures to serve as both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. He wanted that, in a sense, that sense of independence from the president confirmed by Congress, um, and uh, being able then to be in an official position um, in the American government, Uh, That I think was much stronger. And Kissinger wanted, I think, to become Secretary of State and use that position then to uh, carry out foreign policy when Nixon was crippled uh, by the Watergate scandal. And uh, this would be very important. The role of Secretary of State uh, would be very important to
2: Kissinger's role, particularly in the negotiations in the Middle East. You actually mentioned something that I want to go back and, and cover, which is the, the the notion of the the, the idea of, of Kissinger's uh, popularity in the country. Because this is something yeah. that it, 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 we don't necessarily we can't we, we're getting a little bit further away from you know, nowadays. You know, most people probably couldn't name who the Secretary of State is. Uh, they they, they uh, probably couldn't name who the National Security Advisor is. But as you described throughout the book, Kissinger had a public stature. That really was quite extraordinary. I mean, and we're not talking about like it was a different time. I mean, back then, Dean Rusk was nowhere near as popular. Walt Rostow Mm -hmm. was hardly uh, on the cocktail circuit to to the Green Nixon that that Kissinger was. But but Kissinger was—he wasn't just a political figure; he was very much of a celebrity.
0: He was a celebrity Um, that partly came from the China trip, although he had courted the media in Washington quite uh, deliberately from the very beginning Kissinger was Kissinger uh, one of them a Henry Kissinger's extraordinary charm and an incredible sense of humor um, he is a, a, a very interesting person the media many in the media I think deferred to him there was the sort of sense the Harvard professor he, uh, he, he 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 cultivated media he called journalist. He spent a lot of the time, one of his aides estimated, he spent between uh, 30 and 50 percent of his time on the phone with journalists and media figures. He, he cultivated their support, um, providing them background information, leaking them information when it served his purposes. And this then escalated in a sense when he became the figure of the China policy and then sort of the outfront front figure um, for Nixon's foreign policy in 1972. Um, he he played a little bit with this, with his uh, glamorous uh, the, the glamorous women that he would escort to various functions. Some of which was all a bit for show because Kissinger was in a very serious relationship with the woman he eventually married. Uh, but he did court the idea of being a celebrity, and he was a very colorful figure in the administration that seemed to be dominated by men in in suits and blue suits and not very interesting. and And I think he. Uh, He took advantage of this. Uh, The media landscape was very different. You only had the three television networks. Um, They were all based in New York. Um, He cultivated relationships with all the news anchors and all the rest from the television media, as well as the New York Times and Washington Post. And he received very favorable coverage. um, And he became a a figure of great renown. And uh, as I say, uh, the Gallup poll found him at the number one in 1973
2: and 74. Yet as Secretary of State you described that he was facing a lot of more in, increasingly more intractable challenges. You, you mentioned the mm-hmm. Middle East there's there's also uh, some other issues. Uh, what how uh, what was he uh, doing as Secretary of State and to what degree did his role change if at all once uh, Nixon was replaced by Gerald Ford?
0: Well I think this is one of the areas where I'm trying to, I, I think for a time when Nixon was particularly crippled by Watergate, Henry Kissinger was running American foreign policy. Uh, I call him actually uh, the president for foreign policy. And his strategy in the Middle East, his his uh, efforts to uh, arrange a settlement after the Yom Kippur War between Israel and Egypt and Syria and to shape a Middle East that was dominated by the United States, that the United States would play the role of mediator, um, arms supplier. The United States would be the dominant player there and and force out, effectively force out the Soviet Union, which had been uh, courting Egypt and other Arab countries during that time. And then this was uh, central. And now, of course, we have to remember that the Middle East was also much more strategically important at this point because of the oil shortage and the oil um, boycott that took place that suddenly Americans, all Americans, were suddenly affected by the fact that um, there was an oil boycott against the United States. Uh, Prices rose 400% of the price of oil. Uh, The energy crisis of the 1970s brought foreign policy home to Americans, so Kissinger's role in the Middle East and his, his um, uh, emphasis on it as Secretary of State was also connected very much to concerns that Americans had about the position of the United States in the world and about the American economy and America's uh, viability um, in the energy sector. And so uh, Kissinger played a key role in that. Now, when Gerald Ford comes in, when, when Nixon finally resigns, Ford really had immense admiration for Kissinger. I kind of used the joke that uh, the relationship between Ford and Kissinger could be summed up by the fact that Gerald Ford thought Kissinger was brilliant and Kissinger agreed with him and and they basically that that relationship was very uh... Ford really did defer to Kissinger sometimes to the point at which his political advisers thought was was bad because it made him look weak they thought that Ford comparatively did not look like he was in charge of his administration that he had uh, allowed Henry Kissinger to run his foreign policy, and they, they would later. Um, Jimmy Carter would actually campaign on that. But Ford, uh, Ford and Kissinger worked better together because I think uh, Kissinger did like Ford more genuinely than he liked Nixon. He never felt very close to Nixon, uh, whereas I think he genuinely liked Gerald Ford, and they worked together. And uh, Ford had a difficult time sort of reining in Kissinger, he, but he 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 had immense respect for him and allowed him basically, there were very few things in which Kissinger lost any debates or arguments about foreign policy during the Ford period. This was very much Kissinger's foreign policy during this time
2: at the same time though, you uh are talk about a lot more bureaucratic infighting. It seems that while Ford admired him more and maybe even backed him more, that mm-hmm. p- basically people were much more openly gunning for Kissinger. I'm thinking of like, you know, Schlesinger, uh yes. Rumsfeld, you're starting to see the the sense that that you know it, it, Kissinger is no longer someone who is unexpected or uh or or who is, you know, able by virtue of of having that, you know, d- you know heavy access to, to the president to uh, be able to influence things behind-the-scenes. People can see Kissinger coming now, and they prepare for him accordingly.
0: That's right, and, and in fact, there was substantial discussion, especially as Gerald Ford's political situation grew difficult, that he should get rid of Kissinger because he was facing a conservative Ronald Reagan in the primaries in 1976 who argued that Kissinger uh, had been too conciliatory toward the Soviets. And so there was pressure on Kissinger, uh, during that time, and and lots of and many Republican leaders argued he should resign, but Ford stuck with him. And um, I think if if Ford had uh, eked out a win in uh, 1976, and he came very close, he would have kept Kissinger as his uh, Secretary of State. Because Kissinger, I think he did ultimately think Kissinger's running of American foreign policy was very effective and nuanced and and creative, and uh, he dismissed some of the uh, more what he saw as nationalistic criticisms by Ronald Reagan and um, arguments that um, he had allowed America to decline.
2: Yet when Ford, uh, loses and, uh, Kissinger leaves the, uh, the secretaryship of state he had Mm -hmm. he still has that that enormous stature and what what's fascinating is is how you describe how that plays out i mean he is still in in many ways very much a celebrity and as you also point out he's still relatively young he's only 52 when uh in (laughs) 1977 and there's this expectation that he's going to continue to play this outsized role and and here i was thinking about what you talk about earlier in the book where you reference like the wise men you talk about. Atchison, and how these mm-hmm. you, you still had this idea of, of these statesman figures who were oftentimes able to still play a role in American foreign policy, and yet you yet the decades that that, that follow are, are ones in which Kissinger still has this you know very visible presence. He is uh you know very much in the media, but he never gets back into the circle of power again. And, and what, what, how, why exactly doesn't he? And and what does he do with all of this? The, the stature, the celebrity, the, the status that he has?
0: Well, this is, uh, this is, I think, one of the most interesting things. I think during the Carter years, uh, people thought Kissinger was going to come back as Secretary of State, and certainly Kissinger thought himself, I think he was going to come back in some form as Secretary of State uh, for the, the, when the Republicans won in 1980. Uh, I, I quote from a, a Reagan insider uh, who told John Chancellor of the NBC News, uh, uh, anchor at the time that we do not want Henry Kissinger on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, there was a fear uh, that Kissinger was too dominating a presence that he had reduced, uh, that he if he were brought into any administration, he would diminish the uh, power of the president. He would be seen as central. So even though um, Kissinger himself adjusted his own political views uh, to accommodate Reagan conservatism in a, a harder line on the Soviets and Other issues, Um, Ronald Reagan consulted with Kissinger, but he did not appoint him to any significant role until he brought him in to chair his Central American Commission in 1983 and 84, where he was trying to gain uh, bipartisan support for his policies in El Salvador and Nicaragua. And Kissinger served briefly in that role, but then was uh, then elected and uh, you know, provided that report. And then Kissinger, uh, the only other time in which Kissinger might have come back into government was as the head of the 9-11 uh, commission report. He was appointed by George W. Bush and resigned less than two weeks later uh, because of all the conflicts of interest from his business associations that would have to be disclosed. So Kissinger remained, I think, influential in his opinion pieces, in his commentary role, in lots of discussions that he would have. Um, Whenever he went to China, he always met with the leaders there and then prepared a report for the president. So he remained uh, this uh, towering sort of figure in international politics and business um, who provided advice but could not be brought in in a direct leadership role, um, even though uh his ideas were often quite uh, important or at least seen by uh, administration figures as uh, something they wanted to listen to.
2: There was also another aspect that you write about, though, that I thought was even more fascinating, which is how so many times in American history, you have people who leave office and whose stature's Grow people, basically, the estimation of them grows. I'm thinking of like you mm-hmm. know, Harry Truman, Dean Atchison, mm-hmm. and so forth. And, and whereas with Kissinger, you after he leaves office, he's he's this you know, celebrity figure. You describe how he's the you know, most popular person in America, uh, in, in the mid 70s in, in some polls. And it seems that you know, as you go on in, in, into the 80s, into the 90s, Kissinger becomes much more disreputable. You, yes. you, yeah, I'm thinking you know, you know, Hitchens' book, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and, and this, it, it, and to where you know, having him on a panel in the 1980s seemed to be uh, a good thing, whereas you know, the idea of putting him on the 9/11 Commission seemed to be much more controversial from the get-go. Absolutely, no, he, um, and part of this is um, that uh, the revelations
0: of of some of the. Issues that had come up and the degree to which some of the Kissinger legend did not match up to the reality uh, as we saw the papers and heard the tapes and got into the history of that period. It got much more messy. Um, Kissinger was a figure who compromised on many issues and who also did not um, have the same sensitivity to issues, for example, of human rights, particularly in Latin America, in the case of Chile and Argentina. Um, and other issues that um, many Americans felt should be central to American foreign policy. Um, so that Kissinger's own, the fact that he, uh, the, the, as the historical record got out, it became much more a complicated picture. Um, and the, the ways in which Kissinger had tried to shape the narrative of his time in office through his memoirs Uh, became uh, much more problematic. And so historians and others uh, began sort of taking down some of that image. He also became a figure of great um, controversy on the left. Uh, William Shawcross's book on the Cambodian bombing um, and the idea that Kissinger's role in this particularly and then the subsequent tragedy of Cambodia with the uh, Khmer Rouge and the genocide that went on there was the responsibility of the Nixon administration for bringing the war to into cambodia also became a part of this argument Um, uh, revelations about chile and the role of covert operations there the arrests of political prisoners all of this became part of a new narrative as um, Kissinger's role um, became far more controversial, and people began using the idea that Kissinger was a war criminal, that he was he should be brought up, Christopher Hitchens, who was probably one of the most uh, effective polemicists in the English language, really took on Kissinger quite dramatically in his uh, book and then the documentary, The Trial of Henry Kissinger, and so it became uh, Kissinger became sort of a subject of uh, intense controversy. I, I make the case here that I think some of this is related to the fact that Kissinger also so personalized his role in foreign policy and so exaggerated, you might say, his own personal control of events and the degree to which he was responsible for things that it was not a surprise that in a way people came to think that he was responsible for a, a horrific body count of people who were um, suffered during this period, when in fact I think the responsibility is far more mixed, and the United States plays a role in some of this, but much of this also is because of events in these countries themselves. Um, so uh, in a way, Kissinger's fame also became part of the connection to why he became so controversial and so, um, uh, as, uh, and was seen uh, so antagonistically by uh, a large number of, of people and the political, uh, politically liberal
2: or on the left. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yes, I'm, I've am i been doing some work on, you might say, the uh, my early work was on NATO and Europe, and I've become far more interested in the way in which the United States tried to deal with peace in the Pacific, particularly its relationships with countries like Korea, Japan, uh, China, Nationalist China, and others, trying to understand and recognize what was going on in Asia in the 19... I've, I've gone back in time a little bit to my earlier work on alliances um, and uh, work on, uh, you might say, the relationships with allies who were not countries you could, in a sense, bring together the way NATO brought um, Western European countries together, but you needed to have both bilateral relationships and then try to have some sort of security strategy um, it's gotten me into some of the issues involved with um, Korea and Vietnam and the comparison between our relationship with both countries. In fact, I I would like to do a piece on uh, particularly the year 1963, where the Kennedy administration faced comparable political crises both in South Vietnam and in South Korea. We know a lot about what happened in South Vietnam and the overthrow of the ZM regime. We don't know a lot about what went on in Korea, where there was much more of a successful outcome, uh, where the United States was able to persuade uh, the uh, leader there to accept a election and, and to go forth uh, in a democratic path.
2: Hmm. Well, sounds like some very fascinating work and something that could, again, push the boundaries of what we know. So I look forward to reading it. Thank you. Uh, Tom Schwartz, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much.